Father, relationship, that's what you are about. For God so loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Jesus said, this is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That knowledge is the intimate relationship, the intimate knowing, not an acquaintance, not a casual meeting here and there, but an intimate knowledge and relationship with you. It's so important that you died on a cross for us. It's so important that you've made our lives, our very people, as we've put our lives into your hands, dwelling places, temples of the Holy Spirit of God. You are about relationship at a very personal, intimate level. And it cost you a great deal to facilitate that relationship and to give us the blessings and the honor and the glory that comes from that relationship. And so with this in mind, Lord, as we continue to look at the development of our relationship with you, please help us to take these truths to heart and to really embrace them and make them a part of our life so that every day Christ increases in our lives, our flesh decreases, and we enjoy greater intimacy and blessing with you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we looked at the people of Israel being brought out of Egypt, Egypt being a type of the world and sin and bondage, and God bringing them into a new life, a new direction, a new hope, and new blessings, everything new. And we talked about how with the Passover lamb, those who applied the blood of the lamb upon their lives, their doorposts of their homes, were the ones that did not get subjected to the judgment of God and the wrath of God, but they were able to start a new life. Remember how that's the first month when, when the Passover was offered? That's the first, you know, this, this is the first month of the rest of your life. Okay, here we go. And how God led them out and provided for them and brought them into places of testing to actually drive them to himself. Because it wasn't this thing where God just says, okay, I'm going to, I really care about you and I feel badly for you that you're under this bondage and everything. So I'm going to deliver you from bondage and slavery and give you a new life. And so I'm just going to get you out of here and then, you know, have a great life. Hope everything works out for you. Um, take care. He didn't do that. He delivered them to bring them into something beautiful and special and wonderful and more than they could have ever imagined. But unfortunately, as they begin to move forward in this thing, they start screwing up really bad, really fast. And God says to them, it's like, okay, this is, this, you, you are going to be my precious treasure you are going to be so precious to me. And I am going to bless you. 
and I am going to make you a kingdom of priests, people who have direct access to me, the I am, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who was and is and is to come. You are going to have direct access to me. You're my people and I'm your God. And I'm going to make you a holy nation, a separate nation. The old King James talks about Christians being peculiar people. You know, I've heard people say, yeah, and some Christians are more peculiar than others, you know, but uh, we've all got our quirks and whatnot. But the bottom line is we're supposed to be different. And so God says, you just need to do what I tell you to do. You just need to obey my commands. And the people are like, we're in. Thanks, God. We'll follow you. And so you know what happened. God brings Moses up onto Mount Sinai and he gives them the Ten Commandments and the plans for the temple, that place where they'll have interaction, where God would meet them and dwell among them, okay? His presence among his people. And while God is giving this to Moses, the people start going, you know what? We don't know what happened to Moses. They go to Aaron. We don't know what happened to Moses. We haven't seen him for 40 days. And you know, we don't know what God's doing. Aaron, make us a calf. Or actually, make us a God that we can follow. And Aaron's like, okay, bring me your, you know, your earrings and stuff, and we'll go ahead and we'll do this. So he makes the golden calf. And he says, all right, tomorrow's going to be a day to worship Yahweh. So they weren't worshiping another God in their minds. They were worshiping Yahweh. The thing is, they were doing everything that God had just said not to do in the Ten Commandments as far as worshiping him. Don't make an image. There shall be no other gods before me. And they were disobeying that. And he hasn't even brought the tablets down from the mountain yet. Okay? And so Moses comes down. He sees real, literally they're, they're having this party and this orgy. And it's a mess. And... Moses throws down the, the tablets and breaks them because they're broken. They have not even really gotten out of the gate. And the commands of God have been broken after they said, yeah, we're going to follow him. And Moses goes to Aaron and like, what did they do to you to make you make this false God? And you know what Aaron said, right? Well, you know, they just brought me the gold and stuff and I threw it into the fire and poof, out came this, this calf. And it's like, really? Come on. You know, I wonder if Moses is going, oh, you know, God, look who gave me for a brother. You know, it's just like, really? But don't we make lame excuses when we do things that the Lord doesn't want us to do and we disobey? It's like, well, you know, I really want to. You know, it's like, it goes all the way back to the garden, right? Adam, did you eat the fruit that I told you not to? Well, it was the woman you gave me. You gave me the woman and she, you know, and it's just excuses. And so now we have a problem and God judges them and there is punishment, there is death. What do you do? Well, in chapter 33, where we pick up, God has executed judgment and now he says in Exodus 33, it's time to head out. And listen to what he says. This is Exodus chapter 33, verse 3. God says, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff 
stiff-necked people. And when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on their ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people, you are a stiff-necked people. They're rebellious, they're hard. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. So they were humbling themselves. And they hear this disastrous word. God saying, okay, I said I was going to take you to a land flowing in milk and honey. I'm going to send my angel to do that because the way things are going right now, if I'm with you, I will destroy you because you're rebellious. You're stiff-necked. You're disobedient. And they're like, oh. Now Moses, beginning in verse 12, intercedes and listen to the heart of Moses. And what he says is very key for us, okay? Verse 12, chapter 33, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. God's just said, I'm going to send an angel. Well, no, I don't know your angel. I don't know who you're sending up with me. He says, yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, Please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. So basically, he's like, okay, God, look, this is what you said. You said you know me by name, personally. And you said that I have favor in your sight. Well, look, okay, that's what you said. Well, help me know your ways. Help me know you better so I can continue to find favor in your sight. I want to be close to you. Basically, he's getting ready to say, look, I don't know who this angel is. I know you. You say you know me. And I don't want somebody else. I want you. I need you. Okay? He says, consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, God said, my presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. And he said to him, Moses is now saying, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight and I and your people, is it not your going with us so that, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses' response to God is this. I want you. And if you're not going, I'm not going. If you're not with us, we're not leaving where you are. We need your presence. See, the presence of God in our life, the presence of Christ in our life, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life, Moses understood that is where protection is. The presence of God brings provision. Look at the waters of Mara. Look at the water from the rock. Look at the quail and the manna. Look at the deliverance from Egypt. Provision, protection. There is rest. 
There is joy. You know, the scriptures say, in your presence, Lord, is fullness of joy. I think it's the King James that says, joy unspeakable. In your presence is life. In your presence is hope. In your presence is peace. I don't want an angel. I want you with me and with us. And he says, your presence with us makes us different than everybody else on the face of the planet. That's what makes us distinct. You think about Joseph, right? We just read about him a little bit ago. He's in, the, he's in Egypt. He's in bondage, be it in Potiphar's house or in the prison. But it says the Lord was with him. And Potiphar knew God was with him. And the jailer knew God was with him. Why? What made him stand out? How did they know that God was with Joseph? How did Nebuchadnezzar know God was with Daniel? The presence of God was there. For us as believers, is the presence of God, the presence of Christ, the presence of the Holy Spirit visible to the world around us? Or do we look like everybody else? I've, there's so many times in my life where I can look back when I've either been with talking with somebody at, at work or whatnot, and you make a statement that it makes it clear that you go to church and are probably a Christian. And it's like, are you a Christian? Oh, me too. And it's like this big shock. I didn't know you were a Christian. I didn't know you were a Christian. Wow, that's cool. It's like that we should be hanging our head in shame going, people, we should know we were Christians. And it really convicted me. Not that I'm supposed to be out there being, uh, you know, evangelizing and stuff in the workplace and, and all of that, but it's like my life should be different. My conduct should be different. The things that I talk about should be different because holy means to be separate from, different from. It's what distinguishes us. So how, how, do, we, how do we have the presence of God manifest in our life? By obeying the Lord. In 1 John, it says, you know, we are to walk in the light as he is in the light. 1 John chapter 5. Or I'm sorry, chapter 1. My apologies. This is verse 5. I knew there was a 5 in there somewhere. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, there's that relationship. While we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. That's not Christian to Christian. That's one another saint to, to Savior, Jesus to the Christian. Okay, And the blood of Jesus, his, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and that's going to play into what we're looking at this morning, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. If we walk in the light, that means we're walking as Jesus walked, okay? His standard is our standard. And it's not meaning that we're perfect or anything like that. We know that we're going to fall, we're going to sin, but if we confess the sin, he's faithful to forgive. We're going to see that when 
Israel failed and they sinned, there was provision through sacrifice to maintain the relationship or restore it when it's broken. Okay? So we know we're not perfect. But when we walk to the beat of a different drummer, people are going to notice. When the fruit of the Spirit is born in our lives, people are going to know God is with us. When times are rough and we have peace and joy, people are going to know there's a difference and want to know why. When we love rather than returning evil for evil, people are going to want to know why. Because we're different. Because the presence of God is in our life. As we spend time with him and walk with him, you can't help but be morphed. I think about, you know, Jennifer and I, we're coming up in April on 30 years of marriage. After 30 years, we have morphed and become more like each other, okay? You can finish each other's sentences. You know how it is, okay? If, if you've been in a relationship, not just marriage, but anybody you've known for a long time, friends, buddies, whatever, it's like, you just know. You're in tune, right? You are able to connect like that. And, and for a husband and wife, generally, you're going to start taking on the attributes of that other person. For Jennifer, it's not so good. Crummy sense of humor, dad joke stuff and everything. It's just, you know, but for me, taking on her attributes, you know, and she's, she's awesome, you know? She just is, and I've, I've really been blessed by having her in my life. And when we spend time with Jesus, we spend time communicating with him and hanging out with him and following him and doing things with him, guess what? We start he does not start acting like us, okay? But we start to morph and we are transformed into and conformed into the image of Jesus Christ as the Holy Spirit is working in our lives. And people will see that. What makes us different from everybody else? Unfortunately, the world looks at much of the church today in America and they don't see any difference. Sad truth. But there it is. A distinguished life, a different life. We obey God, and there should be fruit that is born because of that. And then in chapter 34, we have a couple of things about his nature that pertain to this, okay? If we go down to verse 6, chapter 34, listen what God says about himself The Lord, the Lord, just in case he didn't know who it was, okay? Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped and he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us for it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin 
and take us for your inheritance. Yeah, Father, if we found favor in your heart, yeah, sight, we are messed up. We screw up, we have botched it, and we have just started this journey with you. Yeah, that's where we're at. But please, would you take us for yourself? Please forgive us. Please help us. And that's when we're going to get into the Levitical sacrifices. And God says, you know, okay, this is how we're going to deal with your sin and your transgressions. He's going to make a way. He always has. Because he wants the relationship. Because he loves us. So he renews the covenant. Okay, the covenant's been broken. I just gave it. Moses just trashed the, uh, the tablets. We're going to have to do some replacements there. But God says, all right, we're going to renew this. In chapter 34, verse 10, and he said, behold, I am making a covenant. Okay, we're going to start over. Before all you people, I will do marvels such as not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom... You are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do. Verse 11, observe what I command you this day. It goes back to obedience. Okay, we're going to do this. All right, I'm with you. We're going to do it. Obey me. And going down to verse 14, he says, You shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after the gods and make your sons whore after their gods, you shall not make for yourself any god of cast metal. It's like, okay, guys, we're making a covenant. You're not going to do what you just did when you go into the land and make a covenant with their gods and with their people. You're not going to go there. I'm a jealous God. And that word, you know, when we think of jealousy, it's usually in the negative, right? Where, you know, you get jealous of somebody because they got something that you wish you had. It's envy, you know. Or you really dig on somebody. This is like a real big problem like junior high and high school primarily where, you know, you're really digging on somebody and they're digging on somebody else, not you, and you get jealous and stuff. I guess it's not just high school or whatever, but, you know, when you're first getting into liking people and, and uh, whatnot and relationships, it's, it's weird. It's an awkward dynamic that comes in. But for God, he is jealous because he loves us. And he does not want anything or anyone to hurt us. Why? We're his precious treasure. We are bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, his son. We are valuable to him. And you protect what is dear to you. You don't want anybody messing with your precious jewels, your precious treasures, your precious love. No. And the relationship between God and Israel was likened unto a husband and wife, Hosea. God told him, Hosea, I want you to marry a prostitute named Gomer. Because it's going to show the kind of relationship that Israel and I have. A faithless wife. Jealousy, if you are married to somebody 
and they decide that they want to have an open marriage or they want to have a relationship with other people and you, being jealous is a natural and understandable reaction. No, you're my wife. You're my husband. And I am not sharing you with anybody. For God, think of how it must feel when you give your very son for a people and they choose to go after another. Oh my word, isn't that heartbreaking? It's understandable why God says his name is jealous. He gave everything for us. And he deserves our total love and adoration. So if we're going to start this journey, then you're going to have to obey my commands. And then God, in chapters 35, 36, 37, 38, and 39, and 40, talk about the building of the tabernacle. Okay? All right, gang, here it is. I'm renewing the covenant. I'm going to go with you. Remember, you have to obey me, and I will be in your midst. Now, build the tabernacle. It takes a year for them to do that, a little bit more, okay? So they're where they're at, and they're building the tabernacle, that place of meeting. And I love this. After all of this has transpired, chapter 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle throughout all their journeys. Whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on that tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. I'm not going to leave you. Throughout all their journeys, he was there. The glory of God was so thick and so heavy, Moses could not go into the tabernacle. You can't help but think about when Solomon dedicated the temple, the first temple, right? And so they bring the sacrifices and the priests are preparing everything and all the worship is going on. And then the Shekinah, the glory of God descended upon the temple. And it was so thick that the priests had to run out of the temple. It's just like, where's the door? I don't know. Can you imagine like if this place filled with a fog so thick, you could not see the windows, you couldn't see each other, you couldn't see the, the doors. You know, God's presence was so thick, you're just overwhelmed. I got to get out of here. It makes me think of, of Moody. And he was, there was a, a, an account where he was talking about how he was feeling dry and empty for a long time. And he was like, Lord, I need your spirit. I need to be close to you. I want to know you more. I want to feel your presence more. And he was walking down the street and he wasn't even expecting anything. And that's when the Lord chose to really connect with him. And he said the Holy Spirit came upon him so heavy that he had to stop and just go into a store and take a break and just sit because he just felt so overwhelmed by the presence of God upon his life at that moment. 
you know, and, and we're, we're not looking for experiences or things like that, but when we are in relationship with the Lord, his presence in our life is a part of that. It's not this distant thing. It's never meant to be, I mean, we live in a time where people have long distance relationships, right? Via the internet, used to be via mail, you know, phone calls and things like that. That's hard. God is not about long distance relationships. His Holy Spirit is within you as a believer. You can't get closer than that. The presence of God in our life distinguishes us from everybody else. When they were making their journey, I wonder how many people were just watching this band and just, you know, they'd be standing up like on the ridge lines or whatever and looking at the Israelites going by and here's this big cloud. Or they're in their camp or whatnot and all of a sudden they can see the cloud coming over the, the ridge and stuff. It's like, what is that? The Israelites are coming. How do you know? That's God. Oh, okay. Or it's nighttime and you're just, you know, putting the sheep down to, to bedding or whatever and all of a sudden, you know, the sun's down and over the horizon there's this glow coming up. What's that? Israel's coming. How do you know? That's God. Oh, okay. The presence of God was with them. You know, I, and I, I can't remember who does it, but there's a song out there, God is in the house. Have you ever heard that? Anybody ever heard that song? Okay, it's got to be on Spotify or something, all right? But it was going through my head all morning. God is in the house. Everybody sing amen. God is in the house. God was in the house. I'm here. I said I would be with you. I will go with you. And I love the way it begins. I'm not going with you. They repent. Moses intercedes. They're going to obey. Okay. Kind of. All right. And it finishes up this book of Exodus. That God was in the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. God was in the house, the tabernacle. The Holy Spirit indwells you. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. If God is in the house, something might probably be different in the way we live. Maybe we need to let him have control of the house. Maybe we need to walk with him in the light as he is in the light so that we are more like him and people can see him. But we sin and we fall. And fortunately, God makes a way. Leviticus chapter 1. Obey me. But you're not going to obey me. But I want relationship. So I'm going to make a way. It goes back to the sacrifice. That's how we started this relationship back in Egypt when it took you out with the Passover lamb. How we're going to keep this relationship intact is going to be through the sacrifice. And so we have some different sacrifices. Chapter 1 of Leviticus, the burnt offering. The Lord called Moses and spake to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, 
He shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. When you think of the word atonement, think at one mint. Okay? At one mint. Atonement. We're connecting. We're going to be united. Okay? Atonement. Allowing there to be unity again. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Also has provision of a lamb or a goat. If you are not a priest or a leader or you're poor, er, if you can't afford a goat, if you can't afford a lamb, or if you don't have those things or a bull, then a couple of birds will do. The bottom line is this. There is a sacrifice for atonement for everyone. It's not just the wealthy. It's not just the powerful. It's not just the priestly. It's not just the leaders. Rich or poor, common or noble, everybody has a sacrifice available to them. Every human being has a sacrifice available to them to be at one with God, and his name is Jesus Christ. Doesn't matter who you are, where you are, what you are, Jesus is an accessible sacrifice to everyone. And that's fantastic. Atonement is available for everyone. Now, I want you to understand this. Did you notice the burnt offering is for atonement, but the burnt offering was consumed wholly by fire. Everything went to the Lord. There's other sacrifices where you keep some of it and you have communion with the Lord, okay? Or the priest keeps some of it. Not so with the burnt offering. The burnt offering was saying, I am giving my life completely and wholly to you. Everything. It's all yours, God. And not just this sacrifice, but every sacrifice. You will notice that the person offering the sacrifice brings the sacrifice before the Lord and lays their hand on the sacrifice. Okay? Now, the word there for lay means to rest or to support, to lean on. So if you were an Israelite and you were going to bring a sacrifice to the Lord, you would bring that bull, that goat, that lamb, those birds, and you would actually put some weight on the head of that animal. And you looked into that face, and I think especially like a lamb. Can you imagine putting your hand? I mean, this is up close and personal. This is not sterile. You don't drop your sacrifice off at the door and say, have at it, Aaron. You're in this. If you're offering the sacrifice, you're getting your hands dirty, literally. And they put their hand and they leaned upon that lamb or that bull. And then the offerer took the knife. And they were the one who cut the throat of that innocent animal. So when you sinned and you looked upon the face of that innocent animal, 
you looked into the eyes of that lamb and you're like, this little animal is going to die because of me. And when you put your weight on that head, you're saying, I'm leaning on you. I'm resting on you that, that your death is going to cover my sin. I'm putting my weight on you. And then you take the life of that sacrifice. That's heavy, isn't it? That is heavy. And where Jesus is concerned, when we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, what we are doing is we are leaning on Jesus and we are laying our hand on him and saying, I am resting upon what you have done to make me right with God. I'm putting my hope in you, my confidence in you. And notice, now we do not physically kill Jesus. But the very people that Jesus came to save did. As they laid hands on him and they crucified him, from that cross, he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Our sin put Jesus on the cross. My sin put Jesus on the cross. And I was thinking about this this morning. It's like, I would hope that my, my disposition to be such that if I were, get, if I were back in this time and I'm, I'm getting ready to sin, I'd have that flash of a picture of that little lamb looking up at me before I killed it and go, you know what? No, I'm, I'm not going there. I am not doing that again. I'm not going to make some other innocent creature die because of my stupidity, my sin, my selfishness, my rebellion. No, I am not doing that. I would hope I would have that thought. But then I started talking to the Lord, you know, and it's like, Jesus, Oh, would that I have that idea and that heart toward you. That when I'm tempted to do that which is sinful and disobey you, I see my lamb, my Jesus, and go, nope, no, I'm not putting that on him. I'm not going to do it. No, I won't have it. I wish I could say I always have that heart. As we'll see, her own nature just, we, we sin. But praise God that there is a sacrifice for us. His name is Jesus. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When the sacrifice was being given, that person was saying, I confess I have sinned before God and I am putting my hope upon this innocent one dying on my behalf to make me right before God. That's heavy stuff. But God is concerned about relationship, ultimately in Jesus Christ being our sacrifice. But may we have that heart to commit everything we have to the Lord. Our whole life, it's yours, you bought it. You know, Paul says, our lives are not our own, we were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God in your bodies. That's heavy. But it's good and it's glorious. And then the law of the grain offering, chapter 2. The grain offering, 
When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall put uh, oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. It was generally offered with a sin offering. Okay. And it symbolizes giving the fruit of your life to God, giving a fruitful life to God. So often, don't we give God less than the best? These are, this is fine flour. Being in ministry, man, I'll, I'll tell you, the church was always a place where people dumped the junk. Hey, does anybody in the church need a vehicle? Oh, yeah, yeah, there's a, a gal, she's an unwed mom, and uh, yeah, she really needs a car for work and everything like that. Well, you know what? I just feel led to, to give, give this vehicle that I have to the church to give to somebody in need. Well, you take it, we learned real quick. Show me the car first. <laughs> I didn't have an engine. Well, can I have a tax credit for it? No, you cannot. Take this home. We don't want it. Don't give God junk. Don't do that. He deserves the fruit of our lives. The best fruits. He deserves it. We want to give that to him. A fruitful life. Now, going back to that, that burnt offering... When Jesus was starting his ministry and people were following him, John the Baptist's disciples said, everybody's going after Jesus. They're not following our ministry very much anymore, John. Remember what John said? He must increase and I must decrease. Totally, John's mindset was, I got to fade into the shadows and disappear so that he might be elevated. The first fruits the good fruits of our life giving to the Lord. He deserves it. I started reading a book last night. It's following the Lord from the perspectives of a surfer. And they're talking about doing big waves, like 60-foot waves, frightening stuff, tsunami grade, okay? And the mindset that they have when they go into it is it's a good day to die. And as I read that last night and I was thinking about this stuff, remember Jesus says, if anyone will follow after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and die. A life utterly committed and given to the Lord. Jesus said, die daily. And I thought, God, would it be, please, that I can wake up every morning and say, it is a good day to die. I want to die so that Jesus Christ might live unhindered through me, so that the fruit of the Spirit might flow and grow through me, unhindered and unrestrained. For Jesus said, the one who believes in me, out of him will flow, not rivers, okay? We think of like, you know, like the Baraboo River or whatever. It's raging torrents of living water, speaking of the Holy Spirit. I feel so often that my life is a trickle of the Holy Spirit, not a raging torrent. Die. Live for the Lord. Bear fruit. Give the best to him of our lives. Not the second best. 
Peace offering, chapter 3. If this offering is of a sacrifice of a peace offering, and in all of these where there's blood, you put your hand on that sacrifice and you take the life of that animal. If he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord, and he shall lay his hand on the head of the offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. The peace offering, what was interesting about this is, God got the bulk of it, and the offerer took some too. And they cooked the meat, and you sat down, and you had lunch with God. When you ate a meal with somebody, you were bonding with that person in that culture. Okay, It's not like when you go out to eat today with somebody, and, you know, they're across the table, you order what you get, and they order what they get, and all that stuff. You had the same common bowls and all of that, and you were sticking your hands. You didn't have silverware, okay? You put the bread in and stuff, and you were grabbing stuff with your hands. And the same food that nourished you nourished them. And I, it made me think of a time I was in Albuquerque, and I was with our, our team that we were going to go do some ministry after the anniversary or on the anniversary of 9-11. And we were flying out of Albuquerque. So we went to this really good Italian restaurant. And I was like, oh, man, I really want some cannelloni. Oh, that sounds so good. So I ordered cannelloni and they bring this out and they bring all of our stuff. We didn't realize these were supposed to be shared corporately at the table. And it's like. What do you mean? It's like, oh, yeah, you, you all share the, the meals because they're big honking things. And we're like looking at it going, and me, I'm like, I really wanted cannelloni, and I'm not sharing it with anybody. I don't want anybody putting their fork in my bowl. Well, it's a communal bowl, not for this. This is mine. This is my turf, my food, you know? And it made me think of this. It's like, wow, you know, it's like somebody reaching over and just, you know, I was going to grab that, but okay, I guess not, you know. But you're eating the same thing. God is taking part of the sacrifice. You're taking part of the sacrifice. Jesus, this is my body. Eat it. Do this in remembrance of me. Taking in the sacrifice. Having peace with God through the sacrifice. Fellowship. The same meal between me and God. There's that relationship, law for sin offering. This is the unintentional. This is when, like we all do, I did not mean to do that. I am so sorry. I apologize. I should not. I, you know, it just came out of me. I just said that. I just did that. How many of us, and you don't have to raise your hand, but you're just like, dang, I don't have to think about sinning. I do. You know, it's just there. Well, there's a sacrifice for that. And it's a blood sacrifice when we sin in unintentionally. Then over in chapter 5, there's the guilt offering. This is when it's unintentional or intentional to God or to a person. And with the guilt offering, um, it's an offering for a sin where it causes God or an individual to suffer loss or damage then you replace what you lost or damaged and you pay them and you give 20% on top of that to them. You make restitution. It's like, whoa, okay. You know, it would make you think twice about borrowing your neighbor's lawnmower. 
or your neighbor's you know power drill or something like that and it's like then you're cleaning out the the shed and you're going oh my you know it's like three months later i forgot to give that back well go give it back and also pay restitution well i'm returning it god you took that thing from the guy he didn't have it he probably didn't even remember where he gave it to okay you know we sin and there's a covering for the sacrifice and then chapter six seven eight deal with how the priests are supposed to prepare their offerings and then in chapter 10 it's time for actually the end of chapter nine i'm sorry um this is a beautiful thing god says to aaron all right you have you as you and your sons you bring a ram you bring a bull for your sins and you bring to have the people bring a ram and a bull and a lamb for their sins and you're going to offer it up and and we're going to this is the first sacrifice at the temple the tabernacle okay we're going to begin this now all right and in chapter 9 verse 23 it says and moses and aaron went into the tent of meeting and when they came out they blessed the people and the glory of the lord appeared to all the people and get this and fire came down from before the lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar and when all the people saw it they shouted and fell on their faces i bet they did god's in the house you know but what's beautiful about this is all right it wasn't that they started the fire and they were the ones who were making this happen and, and go before the lord they put the sacrifice out onto the altar, Aaron and his sons, and God was the one who personally sent out fire and consumed it. He personally received the offering, saying, okay, I accept this. I accept you. We're in this together. And there's the relationship. And there's all these laws on how the sacrifices are supposed to be offered and laws on how Aaron and the priesthood are supposed to offer these sacrifices and what they're to do. And in chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu, his sons, they're like, whoa, that's really cool. And they decide that they're going to offer some incense their own way. Chapter 10 Verse 1, now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, set apart. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. So here's the fire of God coming out, accepting the offering. The fire of God coming out to judge those who go against his commands. And there are so many people who want to worship God their own way. They want to have their own self-stylized means of coming to God. There is not only anything goes. There are a sacrifice for us now. It is Jesus Christ. All roads do not lead to heaven. All paths do not lead to God. 
There is salvation in none other. And God is very adamant about this. This is how we have relationship. It is through the blood of the Lamb. And the only thing that happens when somebody tries to find another way is ultimately there's judgment. Because nothing else but Jesus Christ will save us. And people say, well, that's narrow-minded. You know what? If there's no other way, there's no other way. And Jesus put that before the Father. If there's another way, let this pass from me. Right? In the Garden of Gethsemane. Didn't happen. We need to be very careful about trying to follow God on our terms rather than on his. It'll never be what it needs to be. What God wants it to be. And then going on through from chapter 11 through 15 it's basically dietary laws and sanitation laws and we won't go into those uh some of them are boring some of them are gross Uh, but the thing is god makes it very clear okay this is how you're going to live not just spiritually but in what you eat and in how you live your life and how you you know sanitation and everything you're going to be different than everybody else. You're my people and you're going to be different. And you might remember that God said to Israel, look, if you obey my commands, the diseases and the plagues that had come upon Egypt will not come upon you. The laws that God gave for food and for cleanliness are good for personal hygiene. So much so that in the Middle Ages during the Black Plague, in the 14th century in particular. In Europe, a lot of people thought the Jews were responsible for starting the plague or that they were avoiding contamination because of witchcraft. Because while everybody else was getting sick and dying, the Jewish population was minimally being affected. Why? Because they were keeping the law of God. They were washing, they were cleansing. If something was unclean or they were wondering, hey, is this maybe got some disease? They got rid of it, they burned it, they destroyed it. And the disease was not able to really spread in the the Jewish communities. God cares about our physical life, our emotional life, and our spiritual life. He cares about everything and his laws are good. So, all that being said, I would encourage you. God is all about relationship. Everything he says is all for our good because he loves us so much. We're that treasured possession of his. And may it be that we live a life of a burnt offering, totally devoted to him, so that he may be seen in our lives and that the world around us will go, you are different than other people. Why is it? And we can say it's because of Jesus Christ. Because that's what the world needs. That's who the world needs. It's good for us, it glorifies him, and it's good for others. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you so much that you care so much about every facet of our life, the physical, the emotional, the spiritual. You're a provider of physical things, emotional things, spiritual things. You care about us. Lord, we want your presence in our lives. We want 
your presence to be seen and distinguish us from everybody else. Not because we're better, but because you're with us. And that will be that city set on a hill where people can go, I want to go there. I want to be there. I want that. And that they too can enjoy a relationship with you that you made available through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Consume us, Lord, and may we enjoy the fullness of the relationship, that abundant life that Jesus talks about, that you purchased on the cross through the blood of the Lamb of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.